This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona. The final presidential debate of 2020 got passing marks because the candidates managed to take turns. But rarely did they roll out the kind of action plans the moderator was looking for. She kept asking, if elected, what will you do about this big problem we're facing? But the candidates didn't venture into specifics. We think that was by design. The strategy was make debate number one so bad that by the time debate number two comes around, expectations are so low, everyone will just be grateful it's not incoherent shouting and call it good. Do you think they should offer you a slice of chocolate cake every time you have lunch at school? Yes or no? Wea? No. Kazi? No. No on chocolate cake. Okay, cool. At a time with multiple crises pressing down upon us, specific plans can pull people together, provide direction, and alleviate anxiety. So that's what today's all about. What do you want to hear candidates talking about? What kinds of plans and policies do you wish they were outlining before the public? Executive producer Marisa DeMarco used to play a game with her stepchild when they were little. It was the presidential debate with the kiddo as a candidate and questions posed about real things happening in the world. Marisa would ask, when you're president, how will you address this issue? They would play for hours until any of the adults around couldn't take it anymore. This week, we invited two 10-year-olds to be presidential candidates, and we posed similar questions to what was asked in the second debate of 2020. Nomono presents The Real Debate. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first and only No More Normal Kids as Candidates Debate 2020. Due to the pandemic, we are holding this debate over the phone, fully guaranteeing proper social distancing. I will now introduce the candidates. From the state of California, we have Wea Rukavina. And from the state of New Mexico, we have Kazi Sinandele. Thank you both for being here. Hi, Kazi. Hi, Leah. How are you? Good. Okay, here are the rules. I will ask each of you a question. You will have as long as you need to answer that question. If you would like for me to repeat the question, all you have to do is ask because I have your back. Okay, let's begin. The No More Normal Debate Commission spoke with each of your campaigns and everyone has agreed to the rules. We also held a coin toss before the debate began. The first question goes to candidate Kazi Sinandele. Are you ready? Yes. Excellent. The first topic is coronavirus. The question is, a very contagious illness is all around your country. There's no cure yet. When you're president, what will you do to keep people healthy? Work with the doctors. You would work with the doctors to keep people healthy? Yes. Wea, let me ask the same question to you. When you're president, what will you do to keep people healthy? What I will do when I am president, I will close down everything, make sure people are actually quarantined, and nobody's allowed to go outside. Thank you both very much for your answers. And might I remind the audience to hold your applause as we have a lot of topics to get to. Thank you. Next up, we're going to hear from some of your constituents about these issues. The Nomono Kids' Candidate Debate will be back. Um, Anthony Slag. I am a family physician with the University of New Mexico and the Native Health Initiative. As I sit here, our UNM hospital is overflowing with patients. 
I would love to hear politicians using language that all policy is health policy, not at the exclusion of all policy is education policy, but I do think there are health implications to everything that we consider. If you're pushing me like we should be pushing our presidential candidates for really specific, it's hard in such an inequitable society to just stop things and say nothing can happen for two or three months because the most disenfranchised, the most impoverished, that those communities of color are going to suffer more than the communities that go into such a situation with everything that they need. So there will have to be an even more serious conversation than the Democrats are willing to push forward around really what would it look like to take care of communities we have historically not taken care of so that we could actually get through this in a way that makes better sense for health and lowers our rates. I really don't excuse anyone. I think anyone that's holding public office of any sort, from township to county to state to federal, needs to be talking about this as a forefront issue that is just unlike other issues that maybe you could have said, well, yeah, that's the Band-Aid approach. Get to the deeper wound. I think this wound is deep enough. It's bleeding enough that everyone needs to be talking about it. And again, across political lines, really looking at this as an America issue, as a health issue, and, and not as a politicized on one side or the other issue. I'm Hunter Marshall. I am a registered nurse as well as a current student to become a family nurse practitioner. I would love to hear more discussion about building up public health infrastructure. I think right now there's discussion of expanding healthcare coverage, whether that looks like single payer healthcare system or something else. But ultimately that is just providing more coverage for the same amount of care. By building up our public health infrastructure, whether it's contract tracing or providing more community testing, we can prevent disease, COVID or other things in a way that limits hospitalization and limits illness. In doing such, we can establish trust in public health and in the interventions that we have to limit the spread of disease. Vaccination, the utilization of masks are only effective when the community is invested and trusting that those interventions are effective. I think both the government and public health systems need to proactively earn back the trust of folks they've mistreated in the past, um, particularly indigenous communities and black and brown communities who have been mistreated both by the government as well as the healthcare system. I'm Barbara Weber. I'm the executive director of Health Action New Mexico. I think the policies that I would want them to be debating are ones that are based on science and that they can show are science-driven and are public policy-driven and address the wide number of issues that all the families in New Mexico are facing, and that is affordability for their health care, affordability for their medications, access even to providers. What is the public policy plan that they have to address that, particularly in the midst of COVID and in the post-COVID world? There's a lot of rhetoric instead of policy. What we have to do is learn to separate out the rhetoric and get to the question as what is the plan? What is the plan? I'm Shelley Manlev. I'm the co-president of the New Mexico Public Health Association. The Public Health Association here in New Mexico has three priority areas. They may surprise people. One is universal access to health care. Every other country, developed country in this world, has coverage for everyone. 
We desperately need a way to do universal health care coverage. Here in the state of New Mexico, we have an incredible opportunity for something called the Health Security Plan that would cover everyone, regardless of immigration status, regardless of pre-existing conditions, and create an actual system. We need to look at our planet we live on, the environment, so I want people to be addressing climate change desperately. Without addressing our planetary health, we won't be healthy. And then what we call in public health social determinants of health, food, housing, digital access. That's a huge determinant of health these days. Employment and a minimum wage, people have to have money. All of these areas, I mentioned the digital access, we've just got to have policy efforts that address broadband. And, you know, here we are in 2020, moving into 2021, we can solve that technological problem. And then housing is so critical. You know, we have tremendous homelessness issues that COVID is only heightening. And we've got to create much more housing infrastructure and address housing through, you know, Section 8 vouchers. How are we going to get people housed? These are things that keep me up at night, right? I mean, I literally feel like our world's future is on the ballot in the next few days. Welcome back to the Nomono Kids as Candidates Debate 2020. Before we move on to the second question of the debate, I understand that both of you recently had birthdays. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Wonderful. When was your birthday and how old are you? My birthday was the 23rd of October, of course, and I turned 10 this year. My birthday was the 22nd and I turned 9. That's so cool. Our birthdays are so close together. That is so cool. All right, now on to the second question, which is about the environment. The first to answer will be candidate Wea Rukavina. The question is, the world is getting warmer because people and companies burn fuel. Climate change makes all kinds of problems, like more hurricanes, more wildfires, and dry rivers. When you are leading the country, what will you do to change this situation? What I will do when I am president to change this situation is to make sure that there will be very few fossil fuels burning and there will be more conservation. Thank you very much. All right, Kazi, I turn the question to you. I'd make sure there's not much pollution in the air. Those are both indeed excellent answers. Now, let's see what the voters have to say. We'll be right back. I'm Marielle Nanassi, and I'm the executive director of New Energy Economy. I came to do the work that I did when I learned about the urgency of climate disruption. I changed my practice because I thought, how can I look at my children in their eyes and tell them I knew about climate change, but I didn't do anything about it. We need to institute a federal ban on oil and gas exports and a no-fracking locally in state and federally. And that would still mean there would be some fracking because there's been so much investment by corporations in permits already. There's a very big problem, I'll tell you, with something called produced water, which I think is an Orwellian term for the toxic waste that flows back from when you frack into the earth for oil and gas. Just in 2019 alone in New Mexico, 
with over a billion gallons of this toxic waste. We are blessed in New Mexico with amazing solar resources, yet we don't have very much solar on our electric systems. And we need to shift more of our systems to electric. We need to have electric vehicles and transform the transportation industry within 10 years. If we don't have that kind of goal, we're never going to make it. And our leaders have failed us. My name is John Amundsen. I'm the state director with Environment New Mexico. I have a lot of care and passion for our, our natural environment in addition to the work I do. The first presidential debate um, was the first time that a presidential candidate had been asked about climate change. It has to be part of the conversation moving forward. You know, I, I'm glad that Joe Biden mentioned transitioning to 100% carbon-free energy by 2035. I would have loved to hear more about the benefits that transitioning to clean and renewable energy will bring. 82% of voters agree that the primary goal of U.S. energy policy should be achieving 100% clean energy. And I would have loved to hear you know, more about what that transition looks like and how we're going to accomplish it people really care about how we're going to prevent so much plastic from ending up on our rivers and our oceans and how we're going to protect the public land and open spaces that many, many people cherish inside. That's something that I'd love to hear more about. I'm Laura Paskis. I'm an environment reporter here in New Mexico. I have always found solace and joy outside. It's where I feel happiest. And so understanding the natural world and making sure that as humans, we're not totally destroying those natural places is really important to me. Here in New Mexico, there are a lot of issues that we need to tackle, but our water challenges have to be at the top of any decision maker's list, whether it's a mayor or a state legislator or the federal delegation or, you know, somebody like the governor. We need to be thinking about long-term, realistic water planning, especially as it continues to get warmer and drier. We can't be doing water planning year by year. We need to be coming up with a comprehensive plan and can't be thinking about water issues in sort of a 19th and 20th century way. So water planning is really at the top of my list. But the second thing is looking more broadly, something like the Green New Deal should not be controversial in a place like New Mexico, where we have vast federal lands, we have wind and solar resources, and we're already seeing impacts from climate change. And I love to imagine a world in which we're putting people to work and jobs, safer jobs than in a coal-fired power plant or in the oil and gas fields and renewable energy, environmental restoration, forest restoration, community restoration. New Mexico would see great benefits from all these sorts of things. And I love imagining a future where people are working in their own communities, in their own landscapes, on river and stream restoration projects, forest thinning and restoration, all kinds of things like that that are safe, well-paying jobs that are positive and close to home. This is a boots-on-the-ground issue, whether it's water planning or a Green New Deal kind of thing. Our state legislators need to get to work. Welcome back. 
On to a question about immigration. Candidate Sanandale, you will be the first to answer. People are coming to the United States in search of a better life, often because the U.S. made things hard in their home countries. Right now, we often lock immigrants up in something that's a lot like a jail or a prison. When you're president, what will you do for people who come to the United States from other countries? Make sure they have a nice home that they can live in. Thank you, thank you. Excuse me, excuse me, people in the crowd. We're all aware of the rules tonight, and I've asked you to hold your applause. We have a standard of behavior. These are distinguished children and not the Republican and Democratic nominees. Get your act together, and you better keep your mask on. All right, well, I'm sorry for that interruption. Okay. Candidate Rukavina, your answer to the question. First, I will count the number of people who will be coming, and I will make sure there are enough rooms in base either a hotel or an apartment so that they will be able to live in that apartment or hotel until they have finished signing the things that they have to sign. Thank you both very much for your answers. Now we're going to hear from some of the constituents. Listen close, politicians. Here's what your constituents want to hear you talk about. My name is Allegra Love. I'm an immigration attorney and I work at a nonprofit organization that's statewide called Santa Fe Dreamers Project. I have seen so much about what it means to live in a positive, thriving, beautiful community of immigrants. And I've also witnessed what it looks like when those same people have their rights just trampled on by our government. I work in U.S. detention centers. I work on the U.S. border. I work in Santa Fe, in the public schools, in our community. And like in all three of those places, there are immigrant families who are suffering because of U.S. policy. And sometimes the suffering is just like naked suffering because they're in a detention center during a pandemic and that is tantamount to torture. Sometimes it's that a family that lives just down the street from me in Santa Fe doesn't have access to stimulus money or unemployment money during a pandemic and is being evicted onto the streets because they can't pay their bill. What little conversation there has been on the national level seems to start and stop with the idea of children being separated from their families. And I think that like most decent people can agree that that's terrible. I don't learn anything about a candidate when they tell me they don't want to see children tortured on the U.S. border. That's the very basic test that person needs to pass to get my attention. And then there's 15 different conversations that have to happen after that. Like, how are you going to work with Congress to defund the Department of Homeland Security? How are we going to treat people with dignity on the U.S. border while protecting the sovereignty of our country? How do we have immigration policies without detaining people in carceral situations? How do we create a permanent pathway for residency for dreamers? Making sure that undocumented people are not left out of coronavirus recovery? Like, there's so much. The thing is, is no one's talking about immigration right now, unless we make them, right? Like, that's on us. We can't allow our immigrant neighbors to be swept under the rug. 
I am Jackie Stevens. I am a political science professor and founding director of the Deportation Research Clinic at Northwestern University. It's, it's really actually upsetting as a citizen to feel like my government is so easily able to disregard the rule of law. I mean, it's very hard to follow the rule of law and also have a country that has the kind of deportation system we have in place. Tens of millions of people who live in this country are having their lives impacted in very harmful ways on a daily basis because of a policy that is not really benefiting most people and that would be very easy to change. There's a few really obvious targets. One is the private prison system that Obama actually abolished for people who were in the Bureau of Prisons, but he didn't abolish contracts with private prisons for people who were arrested for immigration violations. So I think one possible target would be the contracts with private prisons and also more broadly, the contracts that Department of Homeland Security has with vendors such as Salesforce and Amazon and Google and Boeing, you know, other corporations that have a stake in the deportation system and therefore plow back the profits that they make from the federal government into pushing for policies that hurt people. It's really up and down the ballot from the president down to the city council are people who should be talking about these issues because these facilities are located in our communities and there's been some really you know, inspiring examples of pushback by people trying to reverse the pattern of their representatives taking money from the private prisons. And I'm thinking in particular um, recently of Adelanto, California, which has a very large facility that's run by GEO. And there was just a few weeks ago, a seven hour meeting in which the residents were able to persuade the city council to have a split vote and not renew the contract for expanding the facility. My name is Rebecca Kitson. I'm an immigration attorney and I'm also an adjunct professor of law at the University of New Mexico School of Law. There needs to be more of a concrete plan as far as asylum seekers. As we know, the Remain in Mexico program has resulted in a massive refugee camp along our border. I believe that that camp is in violation of both international law as well as the U.S. statute that says that we do allow people to seek asylum in the United States. It's also part of an international treaty that we've been part of for decades. If indeed that's not something that we want to embrace as a country, then there needs to be a dismantling of the asylum system and the statute as it currently exists. Also, employment-based immigration, for example, in New Mexico, take the film industry. If we don't have foreign workers, foreign actors coming in in order to be able to support that industry, we have no production. So it would be good to know how precisely the candidates are going to help fuel our economic prosperity through the use of immigration. And my final point would be the immigration court system, honestly, is nearing the point of collapse. At this point, we have 1.26 million people facing removal in the United States. We've got about 500 immigration judges. That has increased significantly under the Trump administration, but the backlog has doubled. Immigration judges have called for an independent judiciary because the whole immigration court system is essentially under the Department of Justice, which means it's subject to whatever whim happens to be occupying the White House. Welcome back. We are now on our fourth question, which is about policing and criminal justice reform. Candidate Rukavina, you will be the first to answer. 
you've probably seen that there are a lot of people calling out for changes to how police do things in cities around the United States. Protesters are out there fighting racism. When you take office, what kind of changes will you make to policing? I will. I mean, this is a really hard question. Um, I feel like I would just try and work things out with them to make sure that they make everything fair. Thank you. Thank you. Candidate Sanandale, your answer, please. Make sure everything is fair and people are treated well. And there you have it, America. Now, let's hear from some more concerned citizens. I'm Barbara Jordan. I started the Black New Mexico movement here in Rio Rancho. I want to say first off that I'm so tired of these surface level answers that these candidates put out there. Oh, I have a plan. Well, we need to know as your constituents, as people of color, Black people, what that plan is. So what I would specifically like to hear is that they're going to implement implicit bias training. It needs to be mandatory in the state, county, and municipal law enforcement everywhere, in every police department. We also need to end blanket qualified immunity. It's an old, outdated principle, and it doesn't apply when we have so many civil rights violations against our citizens. And I would also like to see the three strikes system that they placed on Black Americans. I would like to see that implemented in the police department. Like, if you violate civil rights, one strike, make it retraining, you know, retrain them, then demote them, and then eventually terminate that officer. I think those are the types of things that we need to be hearing from these candidates at every level. And, you know, we're just not getting that right now. I am Arthur Bell. I'm a local activist, and my brother was murdered about seven years ago by the New Mexico State Police. I'm a black man living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I have two children that are also living in New Mexico and in Albuquerque. So anything that I can do to make their life easier is kind of my goal in life. Personally, I would like to see how the defunding of the police looks on a broader scale. So I would like them to go into more detail of what exactly each city needs as far as defunding the police, Albuquerque per se. We don't need the military tanks. We don't need the extra military gear. So we're not saying to take away all of APD's funding, but we're saying to reallocate some of those funds towards some programs and resource centers that our community really needs. So that's what I would love to see them talk about. I mean, this is going to sound a little crazy, but I personally feel like it's my job, or it's our job as a community, the people who are actually voting. So we need to figure out who actually stands up for what we believe in and make sure that they know if they don't do what they say they're going to do, that they're not going to have our vote. As we all know, we only see these certain people when it's election time, so we need to make sure we see them a little more frequently. I'm Daryl DeLoach. I'm uh, what's known as a crisis intervention role player, you know, moderator and facilitator, that kind of stuff. Police are just the gnashing teeth of a much larger monster. If people only focus on reforming the police, they're missing the other parts of the machinery that really cause problems like a corrupt, defunct, whack court system, a corrupt, defunct, whack prison system that the police are feeding the people to. I've heard the mayor talk a lot, talk a lot about police reform and come up with ideas, but I don't feel that that's a conversation that he's having with everyone else. It sort of seems 
singular. So a lot of times the politicians and the people in power, they have that singular issue or singular point that they focus on. When I really feel that they're the people that should be cultivating a larger conversation with more of the people involved. I'm Keegan Clore. So I do work with the Red Nation and I also do work as a member of the Abolish APT Collective. As a brown person in the United States, the threat of police violence is a pretty overwhelming reality of, of life and also for the life of people in my community. At the Red Nation, we understand that police have a history. It's a racist history. They exist to uphold a settler colonial and capitalist order. So the roots of policing are like people hunting down escaped enslaved people, vigilante bands of white settlers and the westward expansion that are tasked with undermining indigenous resistance to that. For us, like, the police do not serve a purpose for our communities. They cause harm, and so any kind of discussion around policing needs to acknowledge that harm and understand that like, defunding as a means to abolition is the only way that we're gonna get the kind of safety and health that our communities need. I am Baron Jones. I am senior policy strategist at the ACLU of New Mexico. It's time for New Mexico to pass a statewide use of force legislation that will create a necessary standard. I would also like to see the state pass a New Mexico Civil Rights Act. All of our elected officials are responsible to a certain degree, right? Everyone that's on that ballot uh, that's running for a seat in the state house or, or state senate, you know, they will have the power this year to pass legislation that speaks to what's going on in the world, right? What's going on in these uprisings over uh, racist police practices and use of excessive force. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. You're listening to No More Normal. We are talking about the policies that politicians and their campaigns did not talk about. In the next 30 minutes, we hear more from our imaginary presidential candidates, and we discover what people want to hear from elected officials about economic policies vital to any sort of recovery, why it is important to protect our right to vote, and what happened to education on the campaign trail. It was almost never mentioned. We talk about it on Nimona. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are just past the midway point of the No More Normal Kids as Candidates Debate 2020. We move on to the economy. Candidate Kazi Sinandale, you will answer first. During the pandemic, many businesses had to close down, some for just a little while and some for good. And people who lost their jobs are really worried about money. When you're president, what will you do to make sure small businesses and workers are okay. Make sure they have um, enough money and a healthy family. Candidate Rukovina, the question falls to you. What I will do to make sure businesses and workers are okay is first of all, I will make sure as soon as this pandemic is over, as soon as we know we have a cure for it and everybody is safe and better, I will make sure they get their jobs back. 
even if they had to close down their businesses and they couldn't open again because uh, because of the pandemic, I would make sure they would be able to open. And I would make sure that they would have enough money to buy things that they would need. Those are two very good plans from both of our candidates. Stay tuned for more. But now let's hear from some of the people. My name is Jesus Zamora. I am the owner and operator of Sister Bar in downtown Albuquerque. My local small business used to employ, you know, a little over 50 people. I really want to kind of keep tabs on what's going on with upcoming tax policy, any revisions that are going to be made as a result of all this bailout money that's been printed as of late. Most people in New Mexico are fairly impoverished. We were already kind of living pretty lean before the pandemic. So you would have liked to have heard more about their plans as far as they still haven't passed a second stimulus bill at all. Are you looking forward? Are you looking at Congress to really cement some of these plans? Absolutely. For me personally, I think that that's a pretty big issue. And I feel like for everyone to kind of just sidestep it, it's pretty insulting. It kind of feels like they're leaving us all out here to hang. It makes me feel like our government is really out of touch with the common citizen's plight. I really would have liked to have heard about, you know, their plans for getting the country out of debt. In theory, one of my worries is, you know, inflation reducing our buying power down to nothing you know it's already bad enough to make a pretty low wage to top it off you know what what is your twenty dollars going to get you next year probably less than it did last year you know one of the other things that they didn't touch on on a tax level again is a lot of us received that additional bonus while we were on unemployment early on in the pandemic and they didn't really give anybody an option to withhold taxes from that bonus so i kind of From my understanding, everybody's going to get hit with the tax bill on top of it. That's just the last thing that people need right now. The other thing that's a little frustrating right now from a local government standpoint, you know, is that all the states were kind of allocated federal money, from my understanding, to aid during this time. And really, the only options they're providing local business owners are loans. And it's like, sure, you can get us access to a fast loan that's unsecured, so to say, even though they still make you sign something that says they can seize everything you own in the event that you default on the loan. That doesn't really help anything. If anything, it just kind of puts everybody in debt. It's really enabling everybody to hang themselves with debt and kind of put everything that they own on the line, whether it's a car or a little mortgage or what have you. So that's a little scary too, you know? My name is Fred Nathan. I'm the executive director of Think New Mexico, which is a statewide results-oriented think tanks serving New Mexicans. Addressing predatory lending in New Mexico could do an enormous amount for the 10 or 12 percent of our population, which is the most marginalized, and these are the people that are unbanked and fall prey to these predatory lenders who charge rates approaching 175 percent for small loans. If we simply reduced the current cap on interest rates of 175% and moved it to 36%, which is what a majority of states already do, we can put hundreds of millions of dollars back into the pockets of some of the poorest New Mexicans who would, of course, spend that money immediately since they're living paycheck to paycheck, and that would help stimulate our economy. It can be addressed either at the national level or the local level. So, for example, at the national level, the Congress and President Bush in 2006 passed a military lending act because they realized so many members of the armed service were in a cycle of debt because they were 
taking loans from predatory lenders that they capped the rate for veterans and for current military people and their spouses and dependents at 36%. It would be very simple for them to simply extend that law to all Americans. The game in politics now is all about turning out your base. And both parties are focused on that. And the unbanked, the people that are targeted by the predatory lenders, are some of the people that are the least likely to vote. They're working multiple jobs. They're just trying to feed their children for the most part. And they don't have time to stand in line, or maybe they don't have the ability, the transportation to get out to vote. So they're easily overlooked by both parties. It really doesn't seem to be an issue that that anyone is really championing. I'm Lauren Green. I'm the founder and owner of the Grove Cafe and Market in Albuquerque. I truly believe that small business creates the soul and quality of life that we surround ourselves with within the city that we live. Without small businesses and a bustling economy, of community and the quality of life seems a little bleak to me. You know, my focus is on how COVID has affected our small businesses and our economies. Being a small business owner, of course, all of my eggs are in that basket. It's imperative to know how we're going to pull America out of this, how we're going to pull our small communities, our cities, our large cities. Everyone's been affected by this in some way, shape or form. Certainly, I have a lot of focus on the Saving the Restaurants Act, the HEROES Act. I know that's in Senate right now. You know, I think that it would have been wonderful to hear some of the plans, some of the action, and how we're really, what we're going to do when, when we start to pop our head above water. I feel like it's all of our political leaders' jobs. I feel like if we're not focusing on the pieces of our community that truly are the threads that bring us up on a daily basis, all walks of life in our community are affected right now related to small businesses. And it's a very delicate thing right now. You want to be safe and, and keep the community secure and healthy. But we also have lives to consider that are affected by the lack of business right now. I really think that it's a community leader, political leaders, business leaders. It really needs to be the focus of, of everything right now. Welcome back. We are now at question six of our Kids as Candidates debate. We have one more question after this. This question goes to you, candidate Wea Rukavina. People are worried about other countries interfering with voting and elections in the United States. When you're leading the country, will this issue be important to you? Yes, it will be important to me because I want to make sure the people who are in the um, or in the United States feel safe so that they do not have to move back if they are immigrants. I do not want them to feel like they have to move back because we, uh, to either if they have a dangerous country or a country that they, they do not like to be in, I do not want them to, I don't want them to feel like not safe. Okay. Now, do you feel it's important to, for people in the United States to be able to vote freely and fairly and be safe when they vote? Yes. Yes, I do. Excellent. Thank you very much. Kazi, I ask you this question. People are worried about other countries interfering with voting and elections in the United States. 
when you're leading the country, will this issue of protecting our elections be important to you? Yes, it would be important because we want it to be fair. Free and fair elections for all. That's what our candidates say. Find out what they have to say on the final question of the 2020 Kids as Candidates debate. Now, a word from Concerned Citizens. Hello, this is Don Chavez. I am the executive director of NAVA Education Project, formerly the Native American Voters Alliance Education Project and NM Native Vote. It took until 1948 for Native Americans in the state of New Mexico to get the right to vote. And we still have to deal with a legacy of folks encouraging us not to vote and disenfranchising us as the community of folks within the state. Transparency is key, especially for the smaller minority groups like the Native Vote. It's important that we get honest answers from our leaders so that we can prioritize our issues because they're very unique and specific to a lot of different areas within the state. I think that they should have been talking about supporting the Native American Voting Rights Act that was introduced by Senator Tom Udall and Congressman Ben Ray Luan. You know, there's a lot of work that's left to make sure that that infrastructure is as good on tribal lands as it is in our metropolitan areas. You know, while we aim to close that gap, it's also necessary to make sure that the Native people have expanded access to additional resources. In that particular legislation, Mr. Udall talks about the necessary resources and the oversight that we need to have to ensure that Native Americans and Alaska Natives have equal access to the electoral process. For so long, we've been denied this particular right. It's less than 100 years that we've been able to vote despite a lot of Native Americans participating very heavily in our armed forces. Any politician who is running should encourage everyone to vote and to do all they can to make sure that it's a fair process for everyone, that everyone has the access. You know, the priorities in civic engagement are essential and they're a prerequisite for all of our elected officials. You know, it's how we ensure that they're honest, that there's continuity and accountability within our leaders. And we need to be able to elect leaders who will uphold our democracy. Heather Ferguson, Executive Director of Common Cause New Mexico. We want to make sure that every eligible voter in the state is able to safely go cast a ballot now that we are also dealing with the added challenge of having a pandemic going on. One of our top priorities is that we need to unrig our system. We still have issues with that one person's vote does not count the same as another due to the Electoral College that distorts the will of the majority. And recently we've had two presidents who have been elected without a majority of the population voting for them. The district lines that are being drawn by legislatures are based on partisan interests rather than population. And that gerrymandering gives one party or another a majority in Congress and in the legislatures, even though the overall popular vote may not reflect this. 
And then we also have some major issues, I think, in dealing with just systemic racism that we have built into the system still. One of the issues that was passed is now the John Lewis Act. It was House Resolution 4 with the U.S. Congress. It passed the House in December of 2019, and that would restore the Voting Rights Act, parts of which were struck down by the Supreme Court in the Shelby versus Holder case in 2013. And one of those things was the preclearance provision of any of the voting sites from the 1965 Voting Rights Act that prevented many of the acts of voter suppression that we're seeing now in states like Georgia and Florida and even Texas, where we have a deliberate minimization of polling sites that are accessible to communities of color and trying to make it so that they have longer lines, longer waits, and just a harder time voting. I'm Maria Barsayo Lynch. I serve as the executive director of a project called the Defending Digital Democracy Project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. In our work as a bipartisan security project, uh, looking to identify and recommend strategies that help protect the democratic process and systems from cyber and information attacks. I think many candidates have addressed this topic of protecting the vote and democracy. We've worked with campaigns, we've worked with hundreds of election officials across the country. This is a policy area that not only has there been great kind of research information that we have considered and that has been proposed since 2016, but we're also living a time that is going to further inform how policies for this space help us assure the integrity of the election. So I think it's an important time to both get to understand these issues and also recognize that what we're going through in this election cycle will really help us create policies that allow us to counter these threats to our elections and to our national security. In terms of whose responsibility or who is involved in helping create solutions, it's going to rest on every one of us, you know, as we go vote, what are the things that we need to know about given this evolving threat landscape to in our democratic process that we should be mindful of to make sure that we are able to vote and to participate in the process. And then also, you know, there have been many conversations, especially in the last few years, around, you know, funding needs at the federal level. I want to thank you both for the poise and the brilliance of your answers. You're both wonderful. I will be happy to vote for either of you for president. Here's the <laughs> final question of our debate. School is harder than ever for a lot of people who have to take classes online. And schools were struggling even before the pandemic. When you're president, what will you do for students? Kazi? I'd make sure the schools have enough school supplies. Yes, the schools have enough school supplies. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Wea, I ask you this question. When you're president, what will you do for students? What I will do for students is I will make sure they have enough supplies and they have enough books and like textbooks and regular reading books so they will be able to learn and actually have a job when they get older. 
Before college. Before college. It's important. The students will have supplies and everyone will have books. You heard it from these two candidates. Kids as candidates here on the Nomono Kids as Candidate 2020 debate. I'm Patricia Jimenez-Latham. I am a retired educator, but currently I am the project manager for Transform Education New Mexico. We must take a look at multicultural, multilingual diversity as an asset in our state. You know, thinking about, you know, the legislators, both statewide and nationally, who on our ballots should be talking about these plans? It's everybody's job to tell you the truth. I mean, our congressional delegate, of course, and our legislators, our governor, educators across the state. We're all responsible. I'm Emily Castillo. So I'm a doctoral student at UNM in sociology, and I work with the implementation of ethnic studies. I care about it because I see the ways in which education is a tool for transformation, and particularly with a lot of the issues that I see in Albuquerque. For example, ethnic studies in particular has been shown to change the graduation rates in largely marginalized communities, communities of color, right? And so for an education system that has failed many of us and that has seen us as a deficit to be able to have something like ethnic studies that not only sees our culture and our backgrounds as an asset, but helps to instill that knowledge and that history that's usually taken away from communities of color. I would like policies that are really structured around social and educational justice so, for example, the implementation or, or the mandate of anti-racism trainings in our school district, policies that address the voting age here in, in Albuquerque for school board, right? Like, I would love to see a policy that changes that from 18 down to 16 and ultimately also the implementation of ethnic studies. But I always struggle with how little education is talked about by any candidate, right? When it poses such critical outcomes and critical opportunities, for everybody within our communities. I'm Adrian Sandoval. So I am part of the leadership team at the Center for the Education and Study of Diverse Populations. When I think of policymaking, I guess one of the first things that comes to my mind is families. And some people might think, well, wait, 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 this is a conversation around education. Why do you want to talk about families and communities first? And it's critical because for too many years, we've been focusing because of policymaking on just really thinking about academic achievement and really talking about things like the academic achievement gap as opposed to really honing in on opportunity gaps. And those opportunity gaps that I'm referring to really begin with our families and their access to health resources, their access to mental resources. So in other words, we don't just start by reacting with what's going on in our classrooms. We need to think about a much more holistic approach where we consider the communities, the dynamics of our communities, uh, the amazing assets that our communities have, as well as the supports that they need. I'm Trisha Mokino, and I am the Education Director, co-founder of Keras Children's Learning Center, and I am the Elementary Keras Speaking Guide. Why is education an issue you care about? 
first and foremost for our children, for not only my children, but for our children collectively in the tribe that I'm from, which is Coach T, Giwa, and Okewinge, but collectively as tribal nations and then as all the children in the state of New Mexico. And in particularly in early childhood and elementary, but especially in early childhood, we need sound programs that affirm our children and honor where our children come from. And they first come from their communities and their family. So who in the state capitol and in Washington, D.C. are you looking at to make these plans? Well, here in the state legislature, of course, all the representatives and all of the senators. And then it's the same thing nationally with Congress and the Senate. But money can only go so far. Mm. We can't just throw money at the problem. There has to be a national reckoning. There has to be a state of New Mexico reckoning with truth and reconciliation. And where that has to start is people need to start looking at themselves. They need to look at, for example, the case again with the Yazi versus the state of New Mexico. Why does systemic racism exist to that level? So I don't think that it's even about money at this point. It's about us looking within ourselves. And when we decide that we're going to reckon with the truth, then we're going to decide we should be putting children first. We shouldn't have to argue to get money to provide a culturally sustaining education, a culturally relevant education. We shouldn't have to fight for that. That should be a given. I'm going to ask a couple yes or no questions, and then I'm just going to shoot them out there, and I'll ask you both, and you tell me yes or no. Simple answers. Do you think school should be four days a week? Yes or no, Kazi? Uh, no. And Wea, yes or no? No. Okay, so school five days a week instead of four days a week. Yes. Okay. Do you think they should offer you a slice of chocolate cake every time you have lunch at school? Yes or no? Wea? No. Kazi? No. No on chocolate cake. Okay, cool. All right. So every time you score 100% on a quiz, the school should give you a dollar. Yes or no, Kazi? Yes. Wea? Yes. Okay. So we're good for money, getting paid for good grades, but no cake. All right. I want to thank you all very much. For those answers and this is uncustomary but we will do this because both of you are such champions and you're so wonderful you will get some chocolate chip cookies how does that sound yes okay yeah i'm gonna share some with my sisters because they're probably gonna try and devour them can you please make me a pack only for me and then a pack for them because they are gonna go crazy about mine yes i'm gonna be like well you better share them i will send you a pack for you and then a pack for them Thank you. You're very welcome. Well, I want to thank you both, Kazi Sanandale and Wea Rukavina, for coming on to the show and offering your views. You are both excellent. This was the first and only Nomono, No More Normal Kids as Candidates Debate 2020. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Next week on No More Normal... <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the election. Next Sunday at 11 a.m. here on 89.9 KUNF.
All right, that's all for this week. We want to thank all of our guests for coming onto the show and sharing their perspective. Thank you to our future presidential candidates, Kazi Sinandale and Wea Rukavina. Thank you very, very much. After the debate, they asked, how will people vote for us? How will we know who won? Look for No More Normal on Facebook. We'll poll you there. Thanks to Hannah Colton, Taylor Velasquez, Kavi Overhead, and Nash Jones for the editing help. You all rock. Special thanks to artist Eric J. Garcia of El Machete Illustrated. They provided the artwork for the online version of this week's episode. Thanks to Jazztone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, and Olad Records for providing music for the show. Kaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Vigawatt produced some of the show's themes. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It's hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Khalil E. Colonna. For everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for listening. Yo, and don't forget, Election Day is Tuesday, November 3rd. Do not put your ballot in the mail. You're going to have to walk that thing in on Tuesday. Be safe, be smart, vote.